you know, this I'm gonna have to talk fast because I don't want to keep you here all day. Um, and and honestly, I even thought about maybe not speaking this morning, but um, Wendy will be miserable if I don't. Because I mean, I've I've been about to pop on this passage for a couple of weeks now, so I got to get it out. I'll try to be quick about it. Um, but let me just tell you this before we even start. On my first trip to India, um, here's what I experienced. I've I've led worship for a number of years in America. I love leading worship. I love leading worship, especially when, like, worshipers are there, right? It's, I mean, kind of, if you've ever led worship for churches that don't worship, that's a drag because they're looking at you like, do it better, do it better. And I'm like, this is all I got, man, (laughs) you know? But when you're leading for worshipers, oh, my goodness, right, right? It's totally different. And when I went to India, I remember we took, like, we had a little Casio keyboard, and it was horrible, and, um, there was no sustained pedal, which, you know, if you play keyboard, that drives you nuts when there's no sustained pedal because it sounds like polka. Um, and it was packed. I mean, it was like this. Like, w- those of you, who, who's praying about going to India? Raise your hand. You're praying about going to India, or you've been to India with us. Okay. When you get to India, here's what you're going to find. Their church is half this size. That's pretty f- close, right? Like, you put a wall right here. From here to the door would be their church. And there's about 200 people there. Okay, so literally, like how, you know, when I'm up here and playing keyboard and y'all are right there. Like in America, that's awkward because you're leading worship going, you're in my bubble. But there, they're just like anywhere they can find a place. And so we're leading worship. And we had worked on this set. We had like 10 songs. We knew them. They were awesome. We were ready. And when it all came down to it, we sang that chorus, hallelujah. Um, not the hallelujah chorus, <laughs> but the chorus hallelujah i think bill gaither might have written it i don't know hallelujah hallelujah that one we sang it and they started singing it and we kept singing it and they kept singing it and i think like 25 minutes later we were done like they weren't done but we were like how many times can you make up more words to go with hallelujah and when we sat down i was expecting the entire worship team to be like dude could you have just picked another song because we've moved on and i looked at them i said so what do you think about that and they said i could have sang that all day long and suddenly it dawned on me, that's why we're going to worship so much in heaven. And we think that we're going to worship with a lot of songs. I think we're just going to get stuck on holy, holy, holy is the Lord. If you read Revelation, that gets said a lot. I just don't think we're ever going to move on from that because the presence of God shows up. And that's what it was like in here this morning. Now, let me just say this. If you're here and you were kind of like, I didn't get any of that at all. Like everybody was really into it and I was kind of going, dude, singing a lot not even good he needs to clear his throat he's got something on the back of his throat needs to come out i want to i want to i want to put you at ease okay because i've been in those services too where i knew that i loved jesus but i wasn't getting it like everybody else around me was getting it okay and you are in a safe place if this is your first time at the gathering and you're kind of like that was weird and cool all at the same time you're in a safe place we're not trying to convince anybody that we do it right We're just trying to be obedient to Jesus, okay, and give people the freedom to come along if they want to, all right? Now, here's why that's important, because this morning we're in Acts chapter 4, the end of Acts chapter 4 and the beginning of Acts chapter 5. We are on a journey that we're calling Reacts, and the reason it's called Reacts is because we're kind of taking a look at the book of Acts. We're saying, okay, what do we do regarding Acts? What do we do in reference to Acts, Reacts? How do we respond to what they did? Now, we can read about it and say, well, that's the early church. It's what they did. 
but we also want to say what would happen. What would happen in Albemarle, North Carolina? What would happen in Stanley County, North Carolina, Podunkville, if you grew up here? People are like, oh, I just want to get out. But what would happen if all the Christians in Stanley County came together and asked one simple question? If I trusted God today like they trusted God then, would God do today what he did then? So that's what we're asking. I'm not making you do it. We're not, it's not about that. It's just about taking a look at what they did. And today we're going we're gonna to read one of the most bizarre passages in Acts. And it's, I love it. It's in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. What I'm going to do for you this morning is this. I'm going to give you a disclaimer. I'm going to walk you through kind of what's going on in this passage. Then I'm going to give you three observations, and then you're going to flip your sheet over on the back, and I'm going to give you three tests. Okay, not verbal out loud tests. <laughs> Just stuff you can write down and take home with you, okay? Just to see if you're kind of getting what we're talking about. Here's the disclaimer. What I'm going to teach you this morning, admittedly, is very different from what we've been taught most of our lives. It, now, some of you have not been in church all your life. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned this last week that we live in the Bible Belt, but the Bible Belt's around Satan's waist. So a lot of us, we think everybody's growing up in church, but increasingly we live in a culture where a lot of people, they didn't grow up in church, okay? Um, let me give you a quick example. When I was living in Columbia, South Carolina, I was at the YMCA, and I was wearing this shirt that had a big picture of Jesus on the front of it, and at the top it said, it is finished, which if you grew up in church, you know what that means, right? Jesus said it on the cross. It's pretty critical to our salvation, right? But this older man, probably about 70 years old, he walks up to me in the locker room at the YMCA, and he says, can I ask you about your shirt? And I said, sure. Like, what brand is it? He goes, no, no. What, what is that? And I said, what's well, this Jesus? I said, well, I got, he, I, I got that. He said, I knew it was Jesus, but it is finished. What, what does that mean? And so... I said, have you, you never heard the phrase, it is finished? He said, no. He said, not only have I never heard it, but I'm on the board at the Presbyterian Church. I've been there all my life. I've been in church my whole life. I've never heard the phrase, it is finished. What does that mean? And so, I mean, and I'm, I'm sitting there kind of like, what? I didn't say that. I just said, well, let me tell you what it means. It means that when Jesus died on the cross for your sins, he said, it is finished. You don't have to try to earn salvation anymore. The, the way has been paved for you. Your debt has been paid. It is finished. Literally, it's a legal term that says you were guilty. Boom. Now you're not. And he went, you're kidding. I said, do you want to pray about that? I'd love to leave it to you. He said, no, I just, I just wouldn't know what it meant. Just want, I was just curious. And I kind of walked away going, I mean, Columbia, South Carolina. I mean, that's as, as south as you get, right, around here. I mean, and he'd never heard that, even though he'd been in church all of his life. So I, I don't want to get to the place where we just assume that people know stuff. I don't want to assume that because you're here this morning, you know about Jesus and you know about the church and you know that kind of stuff. But if you've been in church any amount of time, what I'm going to teach you this morning is going to sound a little bit different. And I'm okay with that. I want you to know that I'm okay with that. I'm okay with you going, what? Say, huh? I'm okay with that. And it's not because I've got some insight, special revelation with Jesus. It's just because I think that I just see this passage a little differently than some people do. So here we go, okay? That's the disclaimer. 
Now we're going to walk through the passage real fast. I'm just going to try to read us through it, and um, I'll go quickly. Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 32. Now remember, um, Peter and John, they just healed the guy at the temple. They gave the explanation for why they did it. They got put in prison, and they got prayed. They prayed for them, and they got released, and now they're all back together. Verse 32 says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace. Everybody say, much grace. Much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to everyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Let's just sum up to this point. After all the bad that had taken place, right? Peter's been put in, in jail. John was in jail. Bad stuff, persecution. After all that, they're in a pretty good season right now. Would you agree? Here's this real briefly. If you're jotting stuff down, if you keep a score, here's what's going on in the early church. Verse 32, they were, um, they were unified. They were generous, and they were sharing amazing testimonies. How many of you were here a couple weeks ago for Pastor Appreciation Day? You got to hear all the testimonies. And if you weren't here, you've already watched the one-hour and 45-minute marathon online. I watch it over, and I love it. I love it. I love to hear testimonies. That, that day, how we felt that day, that's how they felt all the time. They were unified. They were generous. They were sharing amazing testimonies. They all had much grace. Literally, here's what the word grace means. It means that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness. Little clue for you. That's not how people describe the church today. As a matter of fact, of 16 to 29-year-olds, when they took a survey, the Pew Research Group took a survey with 16 to 29-year-olds and said, what's the, first, what are the, what's the first word you would use to describe the church? 91% of unchurched people in that age group said anti-homosexual. They did not say joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness. 91% of unchurched 16 to 29-year-olds, the first word that pops in their mind, 91%. Do you get that? Nine out of ten people, the first word that pops in their head when you say, what's the church? They go, anti-homosexual. And we just go, well, that's because they're unchurched. Uh-uh-uh. 80% of that age group in the church, their first word is anti-homosexual. Something today is not the way it was then. Because if you'd have asked people back then, what about the church? They would have said, I don't know if I can describe it, but they're full of something. Slight joy, kindness. We're not described that way today. There were no needy among them. None. Raise your hand if you have a need today. I mean really a need. I don't mean like I need the Panthers to win because I do need the Panthers to win. But like you've got a bill that you can't, you don't know how you're going to pay it. Raise your hand. I'm not trying to embarrass you. So can we say that there are no needy among us? No. That was an easy answer. No. But then there were no needy among them. People would sell stuff, give the money to the church. Verse 35 explains the process. They would sell things, bring them to the church, and then the church would take the money, distribute it to those who had need. Literally, I heard about a church one time. They would pass the offering plate around, and they would tell the people, if you have a need, you just take out what you need. 
I want to go to that church, right? It's like, I kind of feel bad, but I need 100 bucks. All right, there you go. I mean, they would pass it around. That's what they would say. Look, we're, we're giving offerings today. We're giving to the Lord. If you need it and it's going by you, don't feel bad about taking it out. Can you imagine being the one guy? It'd probably be a college student, right? Because y'all, y'all are just like, look, I need it. I'm taking it, right? You see that take a penny, give a penny? You're just like dumping it in your pocket, right? It gets to the end, and they're like, nobody's really taking it, but, dude, I need it. Just dumping it in their pocket, stuffing it in every pocket they have. I love that, though. That's kind of what was going on here. Church would distribute it to people that had need. Think about the process. In the early church, could God have just made money appear? He did in a fish with Jesus. So he could have. I mean, God could have just, I don't know how he would have done that. He could have said, let there be light. That's what we did in Genesis. Maybe he would go, cha-ching. And all of a sudden, you know, he's making it rain, right? God's making it rain, money. I don't know, but he didn't do that, right? He didn't do that. How did he do it? What was God's process? This blows my mind. His plan was to use the believer to fund the blessing. He used the believer to fund the blessing. That blows my mind. One of those believers is Joseph. That's who we just read about. I don't know why they picked Joseph, but they did. They talked about him. He must have been a great guy. When your nickname is Son of Encouragement, it's a good thing, right? I mean, I have nicknames for people. Probably not that one. So, so far, things are going good, but in chapter 5, things take a terrible turn. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. So they're like Joseph. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, you've got to understand something. Who knows that he kept some of the money? This is his wife, right? And I guess it's good that they're actually close enough that they talk, right? I mean, sometimes husbands and wives do things, and the other husband, the other spouse doesn't know it. <laughs> you find out later, what's this bill? Oh, those are not good nights. Not that I've ever had that happen. I've read about it. So the only person that knows that what Ananias brought and laid at the apostles' feet, there's a sum of money here, and the only person on the face of the planet that knows that that's not what they sold the property for is his wife, and we'll find out later she's not with him. And here's what Peter said. I would love, love to minister like this someday. This is what, um, so, you know, this is what the Bible calls a word of knowledge, okay? We usually think of it as a really good thing. Like, God's going to do great things through you, brother. Here's the word of knowledge that God gave Peter about Ananias. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan... Now, listen, that'd be like you coming in here with your offering, and you give it, and you're feeling pretty good, and I call you the devil. That's what's going on here. I mean, can you just... We don't even get to see Ananias' reaction. I mean, I wish I could see his face. Because, you know, he's like, yeah, this is awesome. I sold some property. I'm hanging out. I'm like, Joseph, I'm one of the givers in the church. There you go. Satan. Whoa, whoa. Did you call me Satan? He calls the dude Satan. And usually preachers stand at the door and shake your hand as you leave. They're like, I'm so glad you came. We're so desperate for people to fill the seats. I'm so glad you came. I'm so glad you came. We would never actually dare speak truth into your life. But this preacher said, uh, dude, you're Satan. Who has filled your heart? How has Satan so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Now, you just got to know he's calling him Satan. 
He's saying that he lied to the Holy Spirit, and at some point Ananias is going, I don't know where this is going, but what's he talking about? And then he goes, that you have kept some of the money for yourself. And at this point, Ananias is having an oh crap moment. Oh crap. How does he know? Has my wife texted him? Carrier pigeoned him? Let him know? How does he know this? Verse 4, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, was it the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as Ananias is ready to defend himself, he dies. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Everybody say, duh. Then the young man came forward. Now, how'd you like to have this as your internship at the church? Uh, your job is to, to, to bury the dead people. Then the young man came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and, her and buried him. About three hours later, because women are always late, about three hours later, it, it's right there in the Bible. I'm just reading. I read, you apply. Here we go. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. I could make a comment there, too, but we'll keep going. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Now, at some point, are you thinking, is this a trick question? But she's not. So I see her, she sticks her, her chest and her head up. She gets a smile on her face, and she says, yes, that is the price. And Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look. The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So let's just kind of really quickly walk through that part right there. God tells Peter what they've done. He exposes the hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? I'm going to give you a really simple definition. All hypocrisy is, is pretending to have something you don't. Let's take all the spiritual stuff out of it. Pretending to have something you don't. Um, a lot of people meet online nowadays, right? So let's just say that tomorrow we all find ourselves in need of finding a date or a spouse online. And we all go to Match.com. We all go to eHarmony, or as I like to call it, eDisHarmony. Or we go to, um, you know, Christian Mingle. I mean, whatever it is. You know, they're out, they're all out there. And we don't put a picture up of us. But I put a picture up of my face on somebody else's body. And it would be a man, just so you know. <laughs> and he would be like a man's man, right? And I would Photoshop it, and I'd make sure I'm, you know, the skin tone matched and all that stuff. I wouldn't put a little head on a big body. I, would, I mean, it would look good. And then she says, let's meet. Am I excited or am I nervous? I'm a little nervous. Am I wearing big clothes when we meet? Let's meet in the wintertime so I can wear sweaters, right? <laughs> Stuff them. <laughs> Hypocrisy is pretending to have something you don't. So they pretended that they had the same generous spirit that Joseph and some of the others had. 
They're in this environment where they see all this going on. Oh, wow, people are selling stuff, and they're giving the proceeds to the church. That's cool. I want to be like that, too, because I'm going to be, I want to, I see how Peter loves Joseph. I mean, look, they even called him son of encouragement. Like, he, he sold property and gave the proceeds to the church, and they gave him a nickname. I want to be a nickname. I want to be like G-Dog. So I'm going to sell some property. And so he, they pretended to have the same generous spirit that the others had. Did they have the same generous spirit? No, that's why they're hypocrites. If somebody calls you a hypocrite, it's because they feel like you're pretending to have something that you don't. When the world says, I don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites, what they're really saying is, because here's my take on that. If the church is full of hypocrites, they're in the right place. This is where you need to be to hear the truth. But what they're really saying is, I know people who go to church, and they're no different than me. They pretend that they're different than me, but they're no different than me. He looks at porn online just like I look at porn online. I got divorced, and so did they. I've told you about the doctor that Wendy worked for, and he looked at her and said, the only difference between me and you is that I keep 10% of my money. Now, that wasn't true of my wife. But that was how he viewed Christians because the only Christians he knew were no different than him. They just gave 10% of their money to church. So when they say the church is full of hypocrites, what they're saying is it doesn't work. When you lose your temper, you say the same things I say. Three hours later, his wife shows up. Peter asks what the cell was. She lies, and she dies. Verse 11 sums up the church's response to this. I love verse 11. Great fear sees the whole church. You think? People are, like, putting their offerings back in their pocket. They're not signing the guest registry. Look, I know you got an awesome card, and I'll get a red T-shirt, but I ain't giving it to you. Great fear. And so sometimes when you read the word fear in the Bible, it means awe. Like, you know, um, if you met somebody that you just really respect and you just wouldn't even know what to say because you're just such an, in awe of them. But this word here is phobos, and it literally means terror and dread. Now, as a pastor, do I want you to come in here and feel terror and dread in the presence of God? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a good answer, yes, no. I mean, I don't really, I don't want you to be afraid of God, but at the same time, I kind of want you to be afraid of God. Like, we're not afraid of God anymore because he's our homeboy. But he's not your homeboy. He's your Savior. He's your Lord. He's not my pal. He's not my buddy. He's not. He is my friend. But when we start wearing hats and say, Jesus is my homeboy, like to me, that's when we're stepping into the line of lightning. The aftermath of the hypocrisy. Here's the aftermath. Verse 12 says that the apostles performed many miracles and signs and wonders, that they had more power. They had more respect. Verse 13, no one else dared to join them. That them is speaking of the apostles. Even though they were highly regarded by the people, verse 14, the aftermath of the hypocrisy being cleansed from the church is that they grew. Check this out. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so at least Peter's shadow might fall on them as he passed by. I'm telling you right now. We think, you know, I want to be a church that has so much power 
that when you leave here tomorrow today, you walk outside, people are like, I just want to park near her at Walmart. Why, why would you want to do that? Because when she walks by me, just maybe her shadow will touch me. And the power of God will do something in my life. Like The world today runs from Christians, right? You read the Gospels and Jesus steps into a party. Guess who becomes the party? Jesus. It's totally different. I mean, I'm not judging. I'm just making an observation. It's different in Acts than it is in the church today. Verse 16, crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all, everybody say all, all of them were healed. So here's the obvious question. What does it mean for us? Here's three conclusions. Here's where you can start filling in the blanks. Here's three conclusions I think we can take away. And surprisingly, none of them are about money. Because everybody reads this passage and thinks it's about money. Like this is when Pastor Paul's going to give the altar call about giving greater tithes and selling your houses and bringing it in. But this, these observations aren't even about money. Because I don't think that at the heart of it, this passage is about money. Okay? N- number one. Number one. Sundays are the least important day of the week. Now I'm going to have to explain that. Because that's a radically different way of viewing scriptures in Sundays. I'm not saying that Sundays are not important. What I'm saying is we need to elevate the importance of living authentic Christian lives Monday through Saturday. So if this is Sunday here and this is Monday through Saturday here, when I say Sundays are the least important day, what I'm not saying is that we take Sunday from this position and put it, put it down here. What I'm saying is Sunday's always going to stay there, but we do this. What happens on the other six days is of much greater importance. This is on our website. I just took it off of it because I, I wrote it once and couldn't have said it any better. So here's, here's what it says. For a lot of churches, Sunday is game day. For us, it's the end zone, complete with celebration, dances, and spiked footballs. We believe that what we've done on the other six days matters a whole lot more than what we do on one morning and that our faith is defined more by our daily walk than our weekly worship. Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. He did not say, if you want to come after me, meet once a week at church and sing loud. Because honestly, anybody can do that. So this helps to frame today's big idea. At the top of your sheet, you got a big idea. Here's what it is. Our actions on the other six create reactions on the seventh. Our actions on the other six create reactions on the seventh. In the last part of Acts chapter 4, the daily walk with Jesus resulted in what? Incredible times together. Can you imagine being a part of those services when people would walk in and like they're carrying their bags and it's like, dude, man, I I was selling this piece of property and I was asking this much and I got this much because God knew I was going to take this money. I just want to give it here. And then right behind him, someone else is coming in. They're doing the same thing. And then here comes Joseph, and he's the son of encouragement. He's like, man, I can't believe how much I got for my property, but here it's, it's yours, man. Take it. You just get. And they're just distributing the money, and people that had needs are walking out without needs. Can you just imagine that scenario? People going nuts. Because their actions on the days previous caused a reaction on Sunday. Now we get to the, the bad part, chapter 5. Same thing's true. Ananias and Sapphira, their action on the previous six days, selling it, deciding in their heart to keep part of it for themselves, which they they could have done anyway, 
but they chose to be hypocrites instead, and they came in, and their actions caused a reaction on the seventh day. The reaction was they got killed. So it doesn't matter if it's good or bad. The truth is your actions on the other six create a reaction on the seventh. It's not a surprise that worship today was electric. Can I tell you why? I mean, listen, I love you guys. But worship's electric because we have two rows here who have seen 1,700 souls come into the kingdom. Because their actions on the other six caused a reaction on the seventh, and you got to play a part of that. And then it just explodes from there. Then everybody's like, dude, this is, yeah. Your love never fails, it never gives. I can't even sing. Yeah, just into it. You know, if Gavin was up here, he'd be doing the Gavin praise, right? If you weren't here earlier, you don't know what that means. Because our actions, now, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that later. I won't say it now. All this leads to the second observation. Sunday reveals our hypocrisy or honesty on the other six. Sunday reveals our hypocrisy or honesty on the other six. You've heard the marketing slogan, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, yes? That's not true in the Christian faith. What happens on the other six days does not stay there. You bring it into here. It spills over onto the seventh day. On Sundays, we, we have the same choice. We can honestly worship or we can hypocritically wither. We can honestly worship or hypocritically wither. Let me read you a quick story in Luke chapter 18. Nine through fourteen. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector who's right next to me and can hear me saying, I'm glad I'm not like him. I added that part because this Pharisee's a jerk. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He could not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Sundays reveal hypocrisy or honesty from the other six days. And the reason is the third observation. Hypocrisy results in death. Honesty results in growth. Hypocrisy results in death. Honesty results in growth. If you don't get anything else from this story in Acts, I'd like for you to get that, okay? Everybody say death. Death is a bad thing, right? So we don't want death, we want growth. Hypocrisy results in death. Honesty results in growth. Acting on Sunday as if we possess intimacy with Jesus on the other six days when we really don't will always lead to death. Um, jot down Proverbs 14, 12. I don't think that any of you are going to, like, let's just say that we, we're, we live like the devil outside. I mean, and then you come in here on Sunday and act like everything's cool, right? So I'm, I don't think you're going to get struck down dead, although I'll be honest with you. I mean, there's a part of me that's thinking that'd be an awesome service. Ex except, except, if I'm honest, I would probably be the one killed. And, and so would you. So all of us would die, 
None of us would get to tweet about it, right? <laughs> With our dying tweet, oh, they got good. You know, I mean, we think we would like that, and I'm sure it would get our attention. But I think what happens, it's much more of a slow death. Proverbs 14, 12 says that there is a way that seems right to man, but the end of it is death. And he, here's how that fits in. The way that seems right to man in this passage is to pretend like we got it all together. Is that fair to say? That's kind of our plan, right? I'll fake it till I make it. I'm going to pretend like it's all good. That's why, that's why you know, I look, moms are the best. Moms can be like chewing their kids out, but the phone rings, and, hey, how's it going? Right? We do that, too, on Sunday mornings. You guys will have World War III in the car on the way to church. And when you walk in the door and I say, how's it going? You're like, great. It's going great. I'm going to kill you when we get home. <laughs> We're so, I'm, and that's why I'm saying, look, this is going to make you scratch your head a little bit. Because to be honest with you, what I would almost rather have is for you to walk in the door and me to say, how's it going? And you say, you know what? Literally, I'm fixing to kick his butt. And probably you wouldn't say butt. Because that's not what you were thinking. I mean, do you see? I mean, this is like peeling an onion, isn't it? It's like just the deeper you go, it's like, oh, God, you're talking about my heart. You're talking about my thoughts. We're so focused on, on what we're on the outside that we think as long as, as long as we put the outside up and it looks good, no one will ever know. Hypocrisy results in death. It's a slow death. There is no way that you can live a double life like that and grow. Some of you, if I'm being honest with you, and you can be honest with me too, some of you, you are hanging on to your walk with Jesus. You are barely hanging on. You know why you're hanging on? Because you don't know how to deal with the fact that life seems to be one way in here and it's 180 degrees different out there. You don't know what to do with that. You know, sitting in here right now, just the, the power of the Word of God, you're so convicted over how you live on the other six days, you're, you're barely hanging on. Because there's a way that seems right to man, and the way that seems right to man is smile at church so people think it's good. And the Bible says that way will lead to death, and it led to the death of Ananias and Sapphira. Hypocrisy always leads to death. But what God desires is in Joel chapter 2, 12 through 14. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. I love this passage. Rend your heart and not your garments. See, even that right there shows it, doesn't it? That's such a man thing. <laughs> Rip off the garments. Tear the shirt on the outside. Look like you're really sorry. And God says, look, don't do that. I don't care if you rip your shirt. Rip your heart. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. <laughs> We're all reading that going, did God read Acts chapter 5? He just killed a couple, right? <laughs> that doesn't sound compassionate. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger, abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord, for, for the Lord your God. That's what God desires in this house this morning. Not that we 
pretend like it's okay, but that we would actually say, you got me. You got me. When God purges hypocrisy from our lives and our churches, the result is always growth. That's what happened in Acts chapter 5, 12 through 16. Did you catch that? The church was filled with the fear of God. The church had a greater desire for holiness. Maybe they just didn't want to get killed. And uncontainable growth was the result. It spilled out into the streets. Did you catch that? Verse 14, nevertheless, more and more men were believe, believed in the Lord, were added to the number, and as a result, people brought the sick where? Into the streets. They didn't bring them to church on Sunday. They brought them into the streets. That was the result of purging hypocrisy from the church. It didn't make them better Christians on Sunday. It made them followers of Jesus the other six days. They found themselves with a greater ministry on the other six and on the seventh. So here we've got we to gotta land the plane. What's it look like when all of us begin to raise the importance of an authentic daily walk with Jesus? The result of living with the other six in mind is that you and I will begin to define success differently. I want you to flip your sheet over. I'm going to give you three tangible tests that will help you know if you're winning in this area, okay? Just, these are just like little self-checks, okay? Cute little phrases. That you can ask yourself and just see how you're doing, okay? I believe this, that when we become serious about living with Jesus the other six days, not just the seventh, that we can ask ourselves, these, we'll see these characteristics in our life. Test number one, we'll talk less and do more. We talk a lot. We do a little. And most of our talking as Christians is about Sunday. I just, he wasn't on today. I can't wait till Phil comes back. He, Paul was long today. Long and good's okay, but it was bad. Coffee shop was kind of hot today. It's not quite like I like it. We talk a lot. We do little. When Sunday is the most important day of the week. But when Sunday is the least important day of the week, we talk less and we do more. I can't quote the whole thing, but my favorite quote, it's too long for me to memorize, is the one that starts with um, by Roosevelt. It says, it's not the critic who counts. Just go home today and Google, it's not the critic who counts. Read the quote and tell me if it applies, if you're a critic or if you're one of the ones that's in the arena doing the fighting. When you live with the other six days in mind, you're the one in the arena fighting. And it's not the critic who counts. Critics are people who sit and do nothing. We have very little time for them. Although we'd like for Jesus to get your heart and save you. Here's an experiment I want you to try. And, and look, I'm not trying to do like this us versus them and like some of you are good people and some of you are bad people. Look, if you're in church any amount of time, at some point the temptation in America is for it to become about Sunday, all right? So when you feel that happening in your heart and I do the same thing, you can talk to Wendy. There's days I'll go home, like I'll go home today and I'll be like, man, that was fun, you know? But then there's some Sundays I go home and I'm like, God, what are we doing? Did you, are you sure you called me to do this? I'm screwing the whole thing up, right? And even that means that I've made Sunday too big, Right? So it's not just you, it's me. All of us do this. So when that happens, here's what I want you to do. 
I want you to take one full week. I want you to stop talking about what bugs you and start doing more for others who have need. So literally, here's the pastoral advice. I want you to take one week and shut up. And I want you to start serving. And then you see if it doesn't change dramatically how you feel about Sunday the next time you come back. I guarantee you that it will. When I was working at the YMCA as a lifeguard, there was this one guy. He, I hated him. I mean, he got under my skin. I couldn't stand the guy. He's always trying to bring me down, always making fun of me, just a total jerk, which is what we say in church. And so one day somebody said, have you thought about praying for him? I was like, uh, well, I pray every day for God to kill him. Does that count? <laughs> no. So I did. I started praying for him. And you know, amazingly enough, as I prayed for that boy, God started to change my heart. And it wasn't long before we were actually having a real conversations. And I was talking to him about Jesus. He, you can't be mad at people you pray for. You can start mad when you pray for them. But if you pray for people over time, guess what happens? God starts to change your heart. So talk less, do more. Now, number two, test number two. It's going to sound like I'm contradicting that, but I'm not. Your days won't be defined by what you did as much as who you were with. I'm trying to do that right now in my own life. I'm trying to lay my head on the pillow at night and not say, well, today was a good day because I checked off five things on my to-do list. I'm trying to lay my head on the pillow and say, today was a good day because today I was with fill in the blank. At the core of who we are as people and as our church especially are two words, and it's be near. We want people to be near. We are created to be relational. Our most fulfilling days will always be days spent with people versus checking off a to-do list. Test two is your days won't be defined by what you did, but as, as much as by who you were with. And in test three, little things will have a bigger meaning. Listen to this closely. The church is full of people who are looking for the next big thing. But the next big thing is probably found by faithfully doing the little things that God has given you to do. Everyday faithfulness is far more powerful than the most charged atmosphere during a Sunday service. And ironically, everyday faithfulness by the church leads to those charged services that we so love. Little things will have a bigger meaning. Now, if you're like most of us, we're almost done. This is a very different view of, your, of faith. It's a very different way to look at life. It's not different from Jesus' view. As a matter of fact, I would challenge you, go home and read the Gospels. Go home and read the Gospel for yourself, and you come back and tell me if what I've just taught you today is not what you see Jesus doing. Now, don't study American church, because if you study American church, what I just told you is not what you'll see being done. Because American church today is let's make Sunday the, I mean, the bomb of the whole week. I mean, let's just like everything we can do so people walk in and feel great when they leave. And sure, they'll go out and like live lives far apart from Jesus for the other six days. But if we can just get them back in on that next seventh day, then we can just fire them up again. You won't find that in the Bible. See, what that is, you ever ridden with somebody who rides the brakes all the time? Like, God, doesn't it drive you nuts? You're like, oh, you just want to go, just go! Just stop or go or do something, but don't do this all the time. You're killing me right now. That is the American Christian life. 
Sunday was awesome. Gas pedal. And then Monday through Saturday, break. Oh, we got to come back to church and repent. God, so we start again. Monday through Saturday, break. That's going nowhere. But when you live with the other six in mind, Sunday's not about restarting. Sunday's about recharging. Very big difference. So the question is, how do we get from where we are to there? And um, I knew that you would have a hard time wrapping your brains around this, so I, I want to give you two words to put at the bottom of your sheet, and then once I say the two words, Michael's going to hit the button, and we're going to watch a little video clip. Two words to getting from here to there. Very simple answer, baby steps. Dr. Marvin, you can help me. For the first time in my life, I feel like there's hope. I feel like I can be somebody. Bob, there's an old saying that the best psychiatrist in the world is the one right inside of you. Yeah. I can help you. Yes. Thank you. Bob, there is a groundbreaking new book that has just come out. Ah. Now, not everything in this book, of course, applies to you, but I'm sure that you can see, when you see the title, exactly how it could help. Baby steps? It means setting small, reasonable goals for yourself, one day at a time. One tiny step at a time. Baby steps. For instance, um, when you leave this office, don't think about everything you have to do in order to get out of the building. Just think of what you must do to get out of this room. And when you get to the hall, deal with that hall and so forth. You see? Baby steps. Baby steps. Oh, boy. Baby steps. Baby steps. Baby steps through the office. Baby steps out the door. It works. It works. All I have to do is take one little step at a time, and I can do anything. Hmm. Baby step around the office. <laughs> Baby step around the office. That should give you a lot to digest while I'm on vacation. V vacation? Oh, certainly my secretary told you. As of this afternoon, I'm taking my family on vacation until Labor Day. That's a month. What if I need you? What if I need to talk? Well, my associate, Dr. Harmon, would be happy to talk. And Bob, I'll be back. Just read baby steps. Baby steps out of the office. Very good. Baby steps to the hall. Very good, Bob. Keep going. That's it. Bye. I'll see you in a month. Baby steps to the elevator. Baby steps to the elevator.
Baby step onto the elevator. Baby steps into the elevator. I'm in the elevator. This morning, I want you to think about baby steps. I, this has been a hard message, I know. It's hard to hear. Um, would you close your eyes? I want to ask you an, another question. This is the hardest one of all. But if you're like, if you're like me, you hear a message like this, and... I mean, we want to say that we're doing well, but the truth of the matter is we're we're blowing it. We're blowing it. And it's just because it's because of our hearts. It's because of the culture we live in. And we just, we fail miserably at living out authentic faith on the other six. So I want you to think not of the perfect scenario. I want you to think baby steps. And I want to ask you this question. When Sunday is the most important day of the week, we put pressure on Sunday. The band needs to be on. The preacher needs to be on. People need to, they need to look good. The people wearing the orange shirts, they need to have had a, they need to be in the best moods. They, they've got to smile. There's so much pressure to make that day the most important because here's what people are asking. Is this a church that I want to attend? Is this, a church, is this a church that I want to be a part of? Is this a church that I want to bring my lost friends to? And today, because we're talking about being authentic on the other six, I'm going to do something hard on you. I'm going to flip the question back around on you because you are the church. Let me ask you this question. If people had followed you last week, are you the kind of church that you would take your friend to? That's a hard question to answer. Am I the kind of church that I would take people to? So before we leave this morning, we want to take time. Just let the Lord begin to work in our hearts. Rend your hearts, not your garments. And who knows, the compassionate, loving, slow to anger God may have mercy.